Podcast is back. This week for UFC Vegas 33, headlined by a fight between middleweight top 15s. We got Uriah Hall taking on Sean Strickland. It's not the easiest fight card to get excited about, especially after we lost three fights there, but luckily Jerry Gooden stepping up, take on Nicholas Dulce, saving one of those fights. Man, glad to have you back, talking fights with you this week. Uh, before I do hand it over to you, make sure to do uh, you know, all the liking, the subbing to the channel, all the shit we ask you guys to do every week to help us out. A little salty about last week, you know, I'm not going to lie, should have went heavier in some spots, might have overvalued, um, you know, some of the fighters there, but, man, just not the results that we are hoping for. No, I'm definitely glad to be back, and like you said, it's a tough week to bounce back from knowing mm -hmm. that we were on the wrong side of the judges scoring, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people felt that way, you know, it wasn't just our bet on Kyler Phillips that kind of didn't go our way. Um, I know a lot of people are really upset about the Macy Barber, Miranda Maverick yeah, fight. As they should be. Yeah, as they should be, um, as well as a couple other spots mm -hmm. on that card. Um, this does seem like one of those fight cards where the UFC is trying to trim some fat. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of these guys are either fighting for their job or they're being set up for more of a coming out party right, right. here. Um, you know, just looking looking back down on the uh, last week's fight card, we have our first bet at Kyler Phillips, which is our big bet of the mm -hmm. night. Um, like we said, a draw is at what best. we... At best. At best. <laughs> I, I truly think Kyler Phillips edged it out, but there could be some bias involved mm -hmm. in that opinion. Um, then the Punahale Soriano bet uh, really just got outclassed, and sadly on the feet against right. Brendan Allen, which was a tough one to kind of... Tough pill to swallow mm -hmm. for us. Um, Andre Yule, we knew we were taking a stab. He had all the physical advantages that right. we liked, but uh, just couldn't use it effectively. Um, then we have the Diana Belbita fight where another girl who had all the physical advantages right. and used it, you know, mm -hmm. she looked, uh, she looked legit out there mm -hmm. and uh, I think really hurt Hannah Goldie's stock uh, after that fight. Um, then we had the Sachara Eubanks, Elsa Reed fight doesn't go to, de go to decision. That one fight should have never yeah. been scheduled. One we should have hit harder for Yeah, sure. I think so as well. And then the uh, Costa wins by TKO round one bet. We took a small stab and for what it's worth at plus 950, he made a good account of himself. Absolutely, man. He basically tore you on his apart that entire round yeah one. i thought he was close to finishing it a couple times uh that being said we knew that we were trying to bet yanez in that round two right uh, tried to hit it hard um that one was uh you, you kind of knew how that fight was going to play mm -hmm. out and it played out exactly how people were thinking um we have already released that big bet uh, i don't know if we've brought that up yet but we do have sean strickland for three units at minus 205 yeah. uh, we've since kind of seen that line get steamed a little bit so i do think that we've done our job as cappers right. and uh read the line how we were supposed to um let's go ahead and jump right into it where we start off in the welterweight division where we see orion kosi who's seven and oh taking on philip rowe who's seven and three I know uh, last week you tweeted out that you were not big into backing guys coming out of Team Alpha Male. <laughs> At least betting against them. Right. You know? And uh, I think that this could be the exception right here. He is coming out of Team Alpha Male and uh, is making his UFC debut after his third round finish over Matt Dixon on the Contender Series, which was a huge upset right. win. Um, he's extremely powerful, and you know we've seen it multiple times in his career where he's gotten these grindy third round finishes, which is something I really like to see. Um, where which was, which was a big unknown in his brother, I think he kind of makes up for it and right. giving us at least a little bit more that we can look at on tape and kind of back him. Mm -hmm. uh, Philip Rowe, another contender series product, where he had an upset win over Leon Shabazian. Um, as we've seen him in the UFC, he fought Gabe Green, who really, 
did exactly what I think Kosey's going to do in this mm-hmm. fight. Pressured him hard right. and kind of just overwhelmed Roe in that fight. And I think that that's where Orion's going to find some success, being able to utilize his wrestling and really just push the pace on somebody in Philip Rowe who just has not quite figured out how to utilize the 6'3 frame with an 80-inch reach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard not to compare him to Magny, and Magny struggles right. with grapplers specifically. I think that's how I see this fight going, and Kosi's actually one of my personal favorite plays on this card, especially with the price tag that he's sitting at right now. And I, I really can't hate everything that you said, but I think ultimately I might end up on the other side with Philip Rowe here. Um, Orion Kosi, he's kind of um, what a lot of people thought as the worst of the two brothers. You know, you see him, like you said, getting those third-round finishes, but if you really look at who this guy's fighting, it's a pretty low-level slate of competition, and I think that's why you saw him enter as the, the plus 300 there to Matt Dixon. But he is finishing every single one of these guys, which is something that you like to see. And, um, you know, you brought up the big point. He's not finishing, you know, all these fights like his brother is a couple minutes into the first round. We've seen him extended. We know what that cardio is going to look like a little bit, which was that big unknown um, for his brother coming into that Sasha Palatnikov fight. Um, but, yeah, you're right, man. Kosi gets in your face. He's real strong on the clinch, looks to land those big knees, looks to sling the left hand, and, and I think he's going to have to rely big on that calf kick a lot to stop, you know, the movement of Philip Rowe. Um, and, you know, Philip Rowe, um, he's never – I think he's only been finished once in his first pro fight, but he doesn't wear shots very well in my opinion. You know, he shows up a little bit. Shabazian's older brother dropped him a little bit, and I, I do think Koski has the power if he does get in there, um, you know, to put Phil Rowe down. Phil Rowe training out of Fusion XL down in Florida, but also splitting time at American Top Team in Georgia – um, you see him training with the um, Lima brothers, with uh, GM3, Rodolfo Vieira, um, and Jared Gooden, who's just jumping up on short notice here. Um, yeah, you know, contender series, and he came in as a big dog there as well. And, you know, for the first round, looked like a big underdog. Shabazzian's brother kind of put it, all to, put it on him and ultimately just kind of took advantage of another Shabazzian brother having no cardio. What Phil Rowe, I don't really like about him here, and it's ultimately – you know, so far it's kind of sucked for him. In the in the apex cage for the Contender Series, it's a small cage, and he struggled with the size of that, in my opinion. He gets stuck with his back on the cage, and unfortunately, you know, with the whole COVID situation and where he's round up, you know, he's been fighting Gabe Green and now Orion in the small cage as well, which is really bad for his style. Um, just with his boxing, long jab, the way he works the body, and the size that he has here, he's a hard guy to hold down. You know, the length helps him get up to his feet. He can threaten with submissions off the bottom, and you know, get a bunch of sweeps and reverse these positions. I think with, you know, the injury Orion was having, the delayed UFC debut, I personally think it's kind of dogger pass here just with the, the size advantage Phil Rowe has. Um, I'm probably going to say this a lot. I don't think either is the smartest bet. I'm going to go Phil Rowe, but I absolutely think Orion um, has the potential to close the distance and land one of those shots, man. Our second fight of the night takes place in the men's bantamweight division where we see Trevin five-star Jones, who's 13-6, and six, taking on Ronnie the Heat Lawrence, who's 7-1. and one. Trevin Jones trains out of Guam, but the last couple weeks he's been in Vegas training out of Extreme Couture, uh, Drysdale Jiu-Jitsu. Um, you know, this fight has come on uh, short notice put together there after both guys lost their opponents, and with the big stylistic switch-up that he's had, Jones is having to prepare for, I'm sure he's pretty happy that he's getting an extra week here. With Jones, man, he's fought all over the world and, and has kind of been on a tear recently. And in the last two, he's busted many, many parlays. On the side of Ronnie Lawrence, man, you know, a Nashville guy. Got to love to back in there. And but since made the move to Sanford MMA, which I think is going to be huge for this guy's career in terms of, you know, making improvements. 
But the pace and style that he brings is something I could watch all day. The relentless takedown pressure reminds me of someone like Colby Covington to an extent. Um, like, again, something I could watch all day. And, you know, he's a contender series veteran. He's got experience in the small octagon as well, which for his style is nice that he doesn't have to chase his opponents down very much. I think, you know, Trevin Jones is probably, he's a black belt on the mat. I think he's going to have the jiu-jitsu to probably defend some of these submissions. I think Lawrence is just going to be a little too active with the strikes, a little too active with the takedowns, and, and probably going to take this one by decision. How do you see it? So I was actually surprised to see that Trevin Jones was coming in here as the underdog. <laughs> I, I thought that he would have been um, like a lot of the, the kind of hype jobs that we've seen, like uh, comma worthy mm-hmm. when it comes to mind, where you're getting these first-round finishes and everybody thinks that he has just the touch of God mm-hmm. in his hands. Um, but it does seem like the, the odds makers are leaning in favor of the grappler and Ronnie Lawrence here. Um, you're right. He he relies heavily on his wrestling game wrestling game to implement his style of fight, and uh, that's where I, I do think that it could get him into some trouble, especially when he gets into the upper echelon of the UFC, where he's fighting guys who does have the takedown defense, and it might exploit the the pitfalls that Lawrence has mm-hmm. in his striking. I, I I will admit that Ronnie Lawrence does have like an unpredictable striking game, and he'll mix in like you know some spinning back kicks mm-hmm. and some. Uh, some some good some good disguising of his takedown entries, but ultimately he only needs one slip up against somebody like Trevin Jones to, to catch him, which mm-hmm. is something that Trevin Jones has mastered at this point. Right. You know, um, he he carries that uh, that power into the later rounds, and like you said, the seven time Nogi champion mm-hmm. according to his Instagram um, of the, I mean I, I think that he has the ground game to where he's not going to be in too mm-hmm. much trouble with Ronnie Lawrence on top of him. This will be one of those performances that Ronnie Lawrence will need to be perfect over 15 minutes to get the dub because he, he does show um, some focus slip-ups uh, in his fights and does get caught with some shots, and that's just not something that you can get away with with Trevin Jones. Personally, I'm okay with laying off of it, although I do think the Tennessee boy and Ronnie Lawrence does have all the tools to mm-hmm. get this fight done and, and in an in a, uh, impressive fashion. But like I said... To, to count on somebody like Ronnie Lawrence, who's 7-1, and one, to be perfect for 15 minutes doesn't sound like a good bet to me, which is why I'm happy we're laying off of it. Yeah, man, I don't mind laying off of it either. It's both two young prospects who I think, well, not so much for Trevin Jones because he ended up getting a debut against Timur Valiev, who's one of the best bantamweight prospects mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, you know, kind of known for, for comeback of the year kind of performance there, and, and any other ref might have stopped that any other yeah, day. I thought it was a Chris Taggioli, you know, <laughs> going to let him get killed before right, he stops Right, signature it. moment. Right. But, you know, you've seen the wind stripped away from him due to the marijuana, which is which quite, it's kind of crazy to me that it's still on his record as a no contest, including that Nevada, you know, State Athletic Commission doesn't even test for it anymore. Mm-hmm. A win that should be given back, in my opinion. And, and I know we parlayed Mario Batista, and he busted our parlay, upsetting, you know, Mario knocking him out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, Trevin is, is good everywhere, man. His striking has proved um, up to par. And, you know, we talked about his grappling already being up to par. With Ronnie Lawrence, though, you know, in the Contender Series, he's given up four inches of height and reach, and he's out here going 12 for 17 on takedowns against a really dangerous striker in Jose Johnson. And then the Vince Cachero, you know, he's a minus 140, which, honestly, looking back on it, seemed like the easiest minus 140 ticket price to date as he you know, looks like a minus 500 that, in, that entire fight. Um, one thing that I like in his striking, he's got that stabbing front kick and the spinning back kick that he throws to the midsection, which we saw give Trevin Jones some issues in that Timor fight. Um, he got a good calf kick, but the one thing I got to knock, and I mentioned it last week when I was doing it by myself with Kyler Phillips, 
he, he's eager for that submission for to advance position, and a lot of times he gives his opponents a lot of space in order to work back to their feet, and that's why you see him having to land 8 and 12 takedowns in, in a fight. Not able to control these guys, but at the same time, it does break a lot of these guys late when they're having to work back to their feet. Um, I was impressed that he finished Cochera there. You know, Cochera is an LFA guy, fought for the belt. He's a hard guy to finish, and, you know, um, it kind of impressed me here. Ultimately, though, like you said, easy fight to ultimately say we're going to pass on, but I am going to go with the Tennessee boy and Ronnie Lawrence. Last thing I want to note is that Ronnie Lawrence isn't necessarily somebody who has the physical build of what I would prefer to see in an all-time grappler. Right. He is kind of like a skinny... String beanie. Yeah, string beanie. <laughs> and he, and he, he's fighting somebody in Trevin Jones who's a purebred athlete. Yeah. You know, the body composition of Trevin Jones versus Ronnie Lawrence, it's about as different as it gets. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm saying I think Ronnie Lawrence will kind of fall eventually uh, hit a wall with his wrestling game being the only way that he gets these wins, and he's going to have to prove something. Um, yeah, definitely okay with laying off this mm-hmm. one. We move on to the women's strawweight where we see Ashley the Spider Monkey Yoder, who's 8-7, and seven, taking on Jinyu Fry, who's 10-6. and six. Ashley Yoder, she's moved to the Combat Sports Academy with Gilbert Melendez for this tra- camp, also cross-training at Team Quest. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I think, I think she's awful, man. I'm actually super excited to fade her. This is what we were putting the casual cap on right here. And, uh, it was a, it's a tough card to pick a good fight, you know? Um, Yoder, she has four submission wins, none of those coming in the UFC. And she's just one of those girls where I feel like she's good enough to exploit the weaknesses in lower level competition. You give like the Dern fight, for example, she's just good enough to outstrike her. Mm-hmm. Or the uh, Granger condo fight, she's just good enough to outgrapple them, you know? But her herself doesn't do either of those things well, you know? Jin Yu Frey, she's a former Invicta Adam Weight champion, which does give me a little mm-hmm. bit reserve. But she's, a, she's about as in shape as you could possibly get for a woman. And uh, she's had three tough fights in the UFC up to this point. She's mm-hmm. definitely shown me more as far as being able to go five rounds and winning the, winning the rounds that matter. Like in her last time out against Gloria DePaula, she absolutely needed that takedown in the third round. Mm-hmm. And she got it, which makes me think that finally, at 36 years old, <laughs> she might have figured out how to get these wins. And uh, a 36-year-old would kind of put me in a little bit of reserve betting her, but Ashley Yoder did just get her ass whooped by a 36-year-old. So how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm definitely on the side of Ashley Yoder here, man. But, you know, looking at this girl's record, making her 10th UFC walk and 3-6 and in that record, it's um, not excited to back her coming here on Saturday. But you really do look at who she's lost to. The Angela Hill twice, Mackenzie Dern, um, you know, they're top 10 girls. And and even the Justine Kishas and the random Arcos, I put them ahead of the Kay Hansons, the Lumalock Bumes, the the Gloria DePaulas, in my opinion. You know, they're mainstays in the UFC and have been here for a couple years, man, grinding their way out. But Yoder, not really impressive in her last, you know, couple. Um, lost three of her last four with the only shining moment being kind of against that Granger fight. But other than that, looking pretty bad and re- looking really bad, in my opinion, in that, um, you know, rematch with Angela Hill. I think we did take a stab on her because she did land a couple takedowns in the first Angela Hill fight. And, we thought she had potential to make it close. And, and she was a plus 350. Plus so. <laughs> 350, and, and she didn't make it close whatsoever, man. You know, Angela was able to stop those takedowns, and, and actually didn't have a lot in the gas tank and got whooped up on, if I'm going to be honest with you. But in this matchup, you know, I do favor Ashley with the striking. She has a uh, long jab that she likes to stay behind. I think she's going to be able to keep the range in the striking. 
And when uh, Jin Yu Fry wants to close that distance, I trust the size and the wrestling that I've seen of Ashley to, to be able to defend some of those. With Jin Yu Fry, um, you're right, two-time Invicta champ and stuff, but an atom weight that really does worry me as well because of you know the physical size of Ashley. She's already a pretty big girl for the strawweight division. She's got four inches in height and reach in here, which is going to help her defend a lot of those takedowns that are come they're going to come against the cage here, in my opinion. You kind of saw with Jin Yu Fry in the Kay Hansen fight. She struggled with a bigger strawweight who was able to outgrapple her. Um, and then the Luma fight, they give her an atom weight to kind of see how she's going to fare. And, and, man, she did not try to wrestle at all. And she ate some absolute shots from Luma in that fight, one that I thought would put a whole lot of girls away. So I'm ne not going to doubt Jin Yu Fry's toughness whatsoever. And then Gloria DePaula, you know, she come out there in round one, dominated with the wrestling, mm -hmm. um, looked incredible. Round two, she doesn't shoot one single takedown, and she tries to strike, and and ultimately, you know, evens it up one one going into the third round. And um, you're right, you do like to see a girl, um, you know, really needing that um, coach getting in her ear, husband getting in her ear, telling her what she needs, and she goes out and shoots that takedown like 20 seconds into the third round, um, and found her success. But both these girls, man, you know, they're they're really just holding on to their job at this point. Their backs against the wall and need it. I don't mind back, backing Ashley Yoder here. Probably by decision, you know. So I, I got it. I think that I saw uh, Jin Yu Fry's three UFC fights a little bit differently. And that Kay Hansen fight, it's 1 1 going mm -hmm. into the third. And I honestly, I think that, you know, unless Kay Hansen pulls off that arm bar, she, she or the, I'm sorry, yeah, the, the arm bar, she, she will probably lose that fight. Jin Yu Fry was going back to the wheelhouse and getting her to the ground. And that fight could have gone differently if she just didn't get caught. Then the Loma Look Bimmy fight. Loma's one of my higher, uh, I, I'm actually pretty high on her. I know that she's a little bit undersized, but it did finally take until that third round when Jin Yu Fry figured out, oh, I can take her down. Mm -hmm. She's not strong enough, and she, she finally utilized it. Then, like you said, the Gloria DePaula fight, um, yeah, it's nice to see that she's finally realizing her path to victory. And the, a lot of these girls in the 115-pound division just can't stop it from getting to the ground. And you'll know how I feel about taller fighters in those lower weight classes. Mm -hmm. They it's tough for them. You can get under their hips really easily, and Ashley Yoder is going to be at a significant strength disadvantage. I mean, Jin Yu Frey is two inches taller than Jessica Andrade, but has just as much muscle mass. Like, I think that she she could do it if her coaches just tell her the right game plan. Um, I'm excited for this one to be the casual cap right here. I think yeah, it'll be a good fight. The more we're talking about, I am as well, because we, like we said, see the grappling exchanges going a bit different. And mm -hmm. even though a pretty low level fight on the card, one that we'll probably be paying close attention yeah. to. Moving on, we go to the men's featherweight division where we see Danny, the Colombian warrior Chavez, who's 11 and four, taking on Kai Kamaka, the third, who's eight and four. Danny Chavez training at the MMA Masters. You see him in his pictures, getting a lot of work with Miguel Baeza, Ilya Taporia, and Colby Covington. After what at one time was a two-fight losing streak, bringing him to a seven and three record, you know he probably wasn't anywhere on the UFC's radar. But man, this guy's grinded, went on a streak, and. Um, you know, was dusting these guys to earn his spot into the UFC, and that success continued, man. I thought he looked really, really good in his debut against TJ Brown, and ultimately while we backed him going into that um, fight with Jared Gordon, mm -hmm. before Gordon shows up as a lightweight on the scales, you know. Well, on the side of Kamaka, training out of one of the better gyms there in Extreme Couture in Vegas, taking this one on short notice, though, which is one thing I, you know, I don't really like in this situation, but you do see him getting rounds in with really great training partners. Champ Aljamain Sterling been there a lot lately. He's the kind of the traditional fighter, um, Hawaiian fighter, likes to stand in there and bang with you, throws hard, um, but 
Man, I um I think he's got his hands full with um with Danny Chavez here and, and sitting at a plus one oh five. I think that's something we might be looking at hitting. Yeah, I'm super happy that we're both seeing it the same way. Danny Chavez is somebody who um his cardio is, is something that, that kind of worries me, mm-hmm. but I can say the same about Kai Kamaka. They right. both kind of have uh fast starts and then have an energy dump. Mm-hmm. You know, that we saw that dump against uh Jared Gordon, like you said, after that first round, it was tough for him to kind of get back into it. He couldn't defend those takedowns as well. And uh, Jared Gordon really started to exploit that takedown defense as he got more tired. One thing that's working in Chavez's favor is Kakamak is not one to really shoot. Like you said, he's one of those Hawaiians that like to stand and bang. And, um, man, for that first round, he has one of the the fastest jabs I've ever seen. Like, he really can throw that thing out there fast. And uh, he's extremely explosive, you know. If... Um, he finds himself on his back. He'll get to his feet. All of his shots have fight-ending intentions. It's just how long can he keep that pace mm-hmm. up? Um, Kakamaka really boxing heavy stance, and I think the biggest thing that we got to watch out for is Chavez's leg kicks. Right. Uh, Chavez can dig into that calf, and Kakamaka relying on that boxing heavy stance where he's heavy on that lead leg mm-hmm. um, could really get him in trouble in those later rounds. I think that, um, you know, my biggest worry for Chavez is I do think that he's a little soft in the body, and Kaikamaka is known to work that body, right. as we saw in the Tony Kelly fight. Um, so that is something that I, I see a path to victory for Kamaka if he can, uh, you know, avoid getting that calf just slammed into and work the body of Chavez. I think that that's where we see the weakness in mm-hmm. Chavez's game. But man, if Chavez can get just a few of those early and really make Kaikamaka think, I don't think that Kaikamaka is ever going to get that. Um, that boxing rhythm that he needs to win his fights and ultimately I could see Chavez uh, grinding out a decision here maybe a 30-27 or a 29-28 once it gets past that first round I think that he has the the more more tools to kind of win it over the judges scorecards over three rounds than Kaikamaka does yeah man and in the Jared Gordon fight besides the whole miss weight and everything Gordon came out with just a ton of forward pressure that that grappling style I think kind of made Chavez a little hesitant to throw his hands um, and then it was so much forward pressure that, um, you know, it took away Chavez's best weapon, which was that calf kick. You mm-hmm. know, um, he showed great takedown defense, uh, but when it did get down to the mat, he showed the inefficiency to get back up. But I just don't think he's going to have the same level of wrestling coming at him if Kamaka does try to threaten with any takedown here. I do trust Danny to keep this one on the feet. And on the feet, I think he's a cleaner striker. He's able to fight, um, you know, going backwards if Kai's going to rush him and you know they've got a they've got a similar opponent here, and you know Kai Kamaka might have should have got the nod. Um, I know you're a little salty about it because you had to wear the hat, mm-hmm. but uh, you know probably might have could have got the nod against T.J. Brown. But regardless, it was an extremely extremely close fight. We saw Danny Chavez go out there and really leave no questions asked um, in that T.J. Brown fight, showing he was a better fighter. Um, you know, yeah, I think these guys similarly fight a whole lot alike. But in the striking and in the grappling, I just ever so slightly finish Danny, uh, favor Danny Chavez in both of those areas. Really, I keep asking myself, how many times are we going to see Kai Kamak at favored odds mm-hmm. and then that get <laughs> upset? You know, yeah. he, I, For whatever reason, the odds makers love to back him. And uh, I think that by fight night, we'll end up seeing the lines kind of shift and Chavez will be the favorite. So I'm more than happy to take him at plus money right now. Absolutely. We move on to the lightweight division where we see Chris Gritz Grutzmacher, who's 14 and 4, taking on gifted Rafa Garcia, who's 12 and 1. Chris Grutzmacher, 35 going on 50, man. I mean, he's <laughs> one of the oldest looking fighters I've ever Ages seen in my like life. like Murphy. <laughs> he's, uh, he's fighting out of Unico in Jacksonville, North Carolina. 
I know you know all the amazing fighters coming out of that camp. No, man, he's not UFC caliber at all, in my opinion. He's 35 years old, like I said, coming off of an awful fucking knockout to Alexander Hernandez. Um, he's had a really tough run in the UFC, and his best win is coming off of a, a, a Joe Luozon, who's, whose best days are behind him, to say right, the least. Right. Um, I know I talked about it earlier, about some people getting a coming out party. Well, this is Rafa Garcia's coming out party right here. He's finally getting to make his UFC appearance on a full camp this time. Um, He's training up there at Team Elevation with Trevor Whitman, which best camp out there probably right now. And, um, you know, he accepted that fight on short notice against none other than Nazrat Hackprass and made it somewhat interesting, you know. Um, I really do think that this is a reward for taking that fight. And... um, Man, Garcia's proven in the past that he has like legitimate wins over guys like Humberto Burdenay, mm-hmm. who who I think is already levels above Chris Grutzmacher. Mm-hmm. Now give him some time up at Team Elevation fighting uh, somebody like Grutzmacher. I just think that it's a recipe for disaster, and I know that we're uh, already wanting to play uh, Garcia inside the distance here. Yeah, and absolutely, we'll be hopping on that for sure. Grutzmacher comes off the Ultimate Fighter season twenty two. He's eliminated by Artem Labov in a, a back-and-forth fight, man. Chris Grutzmacher puts on an early pace on, on Artem round one, but, man, anytime he steps in, Artem is just piecing this guy up. And in that second round, I mean, he gets absolutely stiffened by Artem Labov, and that happens I'm already not going to be a fan of you, to be honest. And then, you know, on the finale card, he gets a win just a couple months later, and then we don't see Chris Grutzmacher for, like, two years. And he comes back thinks lightweight's going to be the, you know, the solving issue. He gets Chas Skelly and Davi Hamos, who just, you know, run right through this man on the ground. And, and at 145, Chris Grutzmacher already did not look physically in the best shape. At 155, all, you know, continues to carry that unnecessary weight that you talk about a lot. In the Joe Lozon, I hate discrediting any fighter's win. I do. He looked good, man. He was able to grab Lozon's hands, push him away, you know, land the nice elbows, cut him up. But I, Joe Lozon, what I'm kind of getting at, he looked off that night, in my opinion. And I think if you run that fight back, it's much different. And then he disappeared for another two and a half years, dealing with an ACL tear at his age and stuff. Another big red flag that you don't like to see. And, and he gets matched up with Alexander Hernandez, who desperately needed a win and did exactly what we all knew was going to happen. Because Chris Grosmacher could not get that head off the center line whatsoever. Rafa... Um, as if I was not already high on him, seeing you know him train with Cheeto and guys like that, having Cub Swanson in his corner in his debut, to hop on Instagram and see him with Trevor Whitman training alongside Justin Gaethje every single day um, made me even more confident in him. And, and to go back and watch that Nazareth Hack Press fight again, it's the biggest layoff of Rafa's career due to the whole COVID-19 stuff. He's off for over a year, and, and that's just a tall task for any debuting fighter regardless. Nazareth would be in absolute prison for what he would do to Chris Grootsmacher if they fought. For Hoffa, man, undefeated prior to that, finished nine of his 12 wins, majority by submission, a few on the feet. Um, I don't know what there is to not really like about the guy, to be honest. He's got title fight experience and everything. On top of that, he's only 26 years old, you know? He's only going to get better, and at that age, you're supposed to be making leaps Mm -hmm. and bounds of improvements after each and every fight. Chris Grutzmeyer in this in this spot kind of looks like Chris Bennett did a few <laughs> weeks back where this dude just shouldn't be in the UFC and we as cappers need to yeah. take advantage of it, which is why I'm happy that we're getting plus 160-something odds right. on Garcia inside the distance. It just seems a little nutty out there, you know? Yeah, and something will probably hit pretty hard. I favor Hoffa 
in the striking. I absolutely favor this guy in the grappling. Um, and in my opinion, we're going to have to see Chris Gritzmacher, like, um, honestly, like Darren Elkins this fight, if he's going to win, he's absolutely going to get damaged on the feet. But when you look at Rafa Garcia and look at the experience in combate, I mean, he's gone five rounds twice before coming into the UFC. The cardio doesn't worry me. Um, man, everything I look at in this fight, um, Rafa Garcia going to be one of my most confident plays on Saturday. I like it. Next up in the men's featherweight division, we see Colin England, who's 8-1, and one, taking on Melsic the Gun, Bagdasarian, who's 5-1. and one. Colin England training out of Factory X Muay Thai there in Denver, Colorado. Him and Bagdasarian both just got their Contender Series contract this very past year on Dana White's Contender Series. And to be honest with you, I was quite surprised that they matched him up right away. You typically don't see that in between prospects coming off the show. With Colin, you know, um, the later the fight goes, you do got to favor him, especially with the wrestling, the jiu-jitsu, especially if he's able to mix that in, you know, early. On side of Melsic, you know, with a last name like that, I'll keep you with one guess where he's trained out of. <laughs> uh, he trains out of the Glendale Fighting uh, Club there with Edmund Tavarian um, and Edmund Shabazian. Um, he's a real decorated kickboxer. This guy's got nasty Muay Thai. And before the Contender Series, he'd finished all four of his MMA wins in under a minute combined, has like no fight time. Um, and coming from a gym like that, it would scream gas tank issues, you know. But we actually got to see him go the full 15 minutes on the Contender Series. It's a real close uh, close fight for me to call here between, um, you know, two real big prospects trying to get their first UFC win. You have a lean in this one? Uh, I don't really. I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of the fights that I spent probably the least amount of time mm-hmm. on. But like you said, uh, Bagdasarian coming out of the Glendale Fighting Club is almost enough for me to just <laughs> auto-fade him, dude. Uh, I mean, I know that uh, he does have that kickboxing background, which is something that I guess I... I have mixed feelings about, you know, sometimes you get somebody like uh, Giga or Israel Adesanya who can come in and really exploit that. And sometimes you get somebody like Zaruk Adeshev who comes from a kickboxing background, but it just doesn't transition well to MMA. And I personally don't think that anybody could formulate a good enough opinion about Bagdasarian's time in MMA to justify betting him as a favorite ever. You know, we look down his record and you see just... (laughs) tomato cans man i mean that is just the glendale special yeah man it's just awful his best fight being against a guy off the contender series who's four and one Uh, i personally like the fact that colin at least his uh, amateur career is in mma Mm -hmm. Uh, he's had you know he's had twice the amount of fights and uh, he's at least had a fight in lfa it wasn't against the best competition (laughs) but at least it's a legitimate organization Mm -hmm. and that um, alone kind of makes me want to play somebody in, in the dog spot like Colin here. Um, but ultimately, I don't. I personally don't think that it'd be a smart play for any capper to put their name behind a, a play here. Yeah, and I'm right there with you, man. With Bagdasarian and that Contender Series fight, the pressure he comes out with in round one, it, it's flat out insane. Um, and there's no way that he's able to keep that up over mm-hmm. the full 15 minutes. You did see the, the output really drop. Um, but still, man, the striking looked incredible. This guy has a nasty straight left hand, and he will fire just some of the nastiest kicks at your body that you've ever seen. And when he gets you in the clinch, it's it's some of the dirtiest Matt Brown-style elbows that you're going to see in the clinch. Um, you, 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 without a doubt, favor him in the striking department. But then when you look at Colin Anglin's contender series um, and, um, fight, and I was uh, pretty you know impressed with him as well. He was able to, to offer some good feints on the feet, um, showed me good cardio, and, and he was able to avoid those big shots. 
from a Taekwondo world champion, someone who was also a very talented striker. So Colin Anglin as a dog, just off of that, honestly, it, he does entice me a little bit. But then to see that round one that Melsic always has, man, Anglin's already a dog. I promise you, you're going to get a better price tag on him come round two. And, and I really do think if you're back in Anglin, round two is probably the spot to go in and play On him. some straight DJing shit. Absolutely. Right <laughs> We move on to the prelim main event where we see Nico Montagna, who's four and three, taking on Mulan Wu Yanan, who is eleven and four. Nico Montagna, she's coming out of Syndicate MMA, which is a really good gym for women. Mm-hmm. Um, she's pulled out of five fights in a row, and we're finally getting to see her. We I think. yeah, we think <laughs> you know up until weigh-ins, you you just don't know. Uh, she won the Ultimate Fighter a while back, which mm-hmm. counts for something, right. you know. Yeah. Um, where Wu really let us down in her last time out. We were backing her against Jocelyn Edwards, who we thought we saw just some terrible holes in her yeah. game. And uh, Edwards actually came out there and, and looked pretty decent, you know? Um, Yanan, you know, we're not really sure where she's training right now. I know in the past she spent some time at Tiger Muay Thai. Um, but she's only 25 years old and hopefully making some improvements to her game after that last time out. She is a... Uh, Pretty well-rounded, a pretty pretty well-rounded striker. Mm-hmm. Uh, she looks to establish that jab early, and I think in this fight specifically, she's going to need to use that lead left hook that yep. she uses so well to circle off the cage and not get pressured. Uh, because if Nico Montagna does anything good, it's it's wrestling, mm-hmm. and she is going to try and look look to stick you up against that cage and grind it out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to lean Montagna here, but I, it's it's another one of these fights where it's tough to make a confident lean on either girl. Yeah. So, on this side, I am, I guess, I'm super confident on Nico to get this fight, but at her current price tag, it's just, I can't touch it, you mm-hmm. know? With Nico, there's three really good wins, you know, on the Ultimate Fighter that just don't show up on this girl's record, and that's, you know, she beat Roxy in the finale. She beat Montana De La Rosa, another top 10 flyweight, um, I think, at the moment. And then Lauren Murphy, who's challenging for the belt next, you know? And, and then in 2017... Um, coming off the Roxy win, she gets matched up with Valentina. Has the big, I guess you could call, weight issues on the scale. But after watching the Priscilla fight, I don't blame her for vacating that belt and just refusing to fight Valentina. Um, more time off, man. And then we finally see her come back up at Bantamweight. Um, and we see her fight Juliana Pena. Um, doesn't go her way. And then, like you said, proceeds to pull out of like five fights. And we've only seen one performance from this girl in three and a half years, which she lost. Um, I do think there is an absolute clear path to Nico here for her wrestling um, if she were to you know, implement that in her game plan. With Wu Yanan, almost a girl that's been just as inconsistent you know, on her part. She's, she's fought like once a year for the past three years, and, and these girls desperately need a win. You've also seen her have to make the move up to Bantamweight. She's a 5'8 girl. You know? She was cutting to flyweight and was having big issues on the scale. The big difference between these girls is, is man, at flyweight, before moving up, you know, Nico's beating these good girls, and Wu Yanan's just really losing to a lot of the lower levels. You talked about the striking, the left look, the left hook is by far her best weapon, and she can fight really well with it moving backwards. Likes the leg kicks to rack up points, but, you know, you just look at her, through her record, man, in the UFC, and she's 1-3 in, in the UFC with the only win she has coming in her backyard of China by way of the famous women's arm bar from guard. Um, and But you look at some of the other fights, and you look at her debut fight against Gina Mazzani, who was forced to fight at Bantamweight at that point, obviously a typical flyweight, just out-wrestled Wu from start to finish. And, and watching that fight has me super confident Nico Montaigne is going to be do, going to be able to do the same. 
But in one performance in almost four years, I just can't touch a minus 200 prize tag at this point, man. And if you need any other, like, you know, reason to bet Montano, this is her easiest fight of those five that she's pulled out of. Mm-hmm. I mean, between Macy Chasson, Julia Villa, and Carol Rosa, I think that this one, uh, stylistically, is definitely the best one for her, yeah. given the fact that Yanan's shown those those holes in her game as far as grappling. Um, so I hear you on Montano should be able to walk through this, but like you said, it's, it's a tough one to, to be super confident on. Yeah, minus 225, minus 250, what I'm looking at right now, just not a smart bet coming off that layoff. Mm-hmm. Opening up the main card in the men's welterweight division, we see Brian Bam Bam Barbarina, who's 15-7, and seven, taking on Jason the Vanilla Gorilla Wit, who's 18-7. and seven. Brian Barbarina trains out of Jim O, which... Um, big thing to note here, man. Lost a huge sparring partner in Impacasangane when he made the move to um, Sanford MMA. That was a huge main, um, you know, partner that Barbarina got a lot of work with, and this is gonna be the first camp without having him in there. He does have Bellator's John Salter, who is a, an, a national championship level wrestler, BJJ black belt. So still some, you know, some really good guys there for him to train with. Um, he's one of the toughest dudes on the roster. Just a grinder. Um, an absolute workhorse, but um, you know he's coming off the stomach surgery. Which you look at his Instagram, he got what looked like cut from you know belly button to chest, and just an awful experience. Makes me a little worrisome backing him here. With uh, Jason Witt, trains out of Glory MMA under head coach James Krause. Um, you know, regardless of skill that the fighter has coming out of that gym, you know they're going to have some type of game plan in mind that they're looking to execute. His um. His UFC career, it's really been all over the place, man. From an absolute battering of Cole Williams to getting knocked out twice with the first punch he gets, you know, he gets hit with. I think, obviously, he's gonna probably come out here and try to wrestle Barbarina. I think he's gonna have an extremely hard time holding Barbarina down, though. Barbarina's just gonna wear on him and probably get that TKO, man. Wits, wits bottom of the barrel to me is what I'm trying to. Trying to get out there and um, going to go Barbarina, probably inside the distance. What about yourself? Yeah, the inside the distance prop is sitting at plus money right now, and I, I honestly think that it'll get steamed once yeah. people realize that Witt has lost all seven of his fights inside the distance. Right. Um, you talked about the game plan that James Krause has for him going in there. It's probably just to avoid getting punched in the face. <laughs> he's fucking awful. I mean, I know that you, you said it. he's just not that caliber. Yeah. And right here, he's fighting for his job. You know, you can't get knocked out with like you said, the first punch of fights twice in a row, or mm-hmm. twice in the UFC, um, and expect to have a, a lengthy career there. Brian Barbarina, you know, he's known for his durability, which is something that, one, I like in this fight, but I also tend to fade in a lot of the other right. fights. Um, I know that he got that bounce back win against Anthony Ivey, who I think, although isn't a great fighter, is even better than Jason Witt. Um, you talked about Barbarina's get-up game. That's something that I do think that he can uh, he can utilize here. Jason Witt, somebody who I think, uh, gas tank-wise, will start to slow down as the fight mm-hmm. continues. And as long as Barbarina can stand back up, that's more and more opportunities for Jason Witt to get punched in the face. <laughs> and I, I think that that uh, TKO uh, prop, or just the inside-the-distance prop at plus 100, um, is the play to make because trying to back Barbarina, somebody who does rely on his chin at a minus 250, mm-hmm. just doesn't sound like a smart play to me. Um, so I'm more than happy to to try and get some plus money on this fight if we do decide to, to dip yeah. into it a little bit. Barbarina's UFC career hasn't been as successful as he's probably liked it to be. You look at who this guy has been matched up with. He's been matched up with three of the top six welterweights. He's, he's fought um, Edwards, Luke A, Cove- Colby Covington. Mm-hmm. I mean... How can you get a win streak going when you're fighting a top six welterweight every other fight of your career in the UFC? 
and I know I know we were sitting right inside the other room in there when he upset Sage Northcutt and just ruined that hype yes. train, stopped it in its place. And what's the UFC do? They give him Worley Alves, who just beat Colby Covington. Barbarina's a massive underdog, and what's he do? Upset him again, man. Brian Barbarina, he's just tough, man. He's so gritty. You're, it's he's a hard guy to finish, and um, Jason Wood is is a really easy guy to finish. And the only time we've seen him look good is when is when Cole Williams shows up, Jake Collier style, ten pounds over the weight limit, and just looked flat out awful. Yeah, pretty confident on Barbarina at the money line, a bit untouchable. But uh, yeah, to get plus money on inside the distance, I like that play for sure. Moving on to the flyweight division, we see Ryan Babyface Benoit, who's ten and seven, taking on Zaruk Adeshev, who's three and. Three. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Benoit, he's three and five since entering the UFC in 2013 with his last loss coming to Tim Elliott. And um, really, it was the output that lost him the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his takedown defense looked pretty good, and he looked like he was throwing harder than ever, but it's still it's a tough opponent to try and come back against, knowing that you have all these problems with your takedown mm-hmm. defense, fighting somebody who would like. Uh, Tim Elliott, who will spam it, um, is is a tough matchup to come back to. Um, Ryan Benoit, he he hasn't a, like a great. I, I personally think his stand up game is where he shines more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in recent years he hasn't really gone to that grappling style attack, and and from what we've seen in the in the stand up, he's extremely powerful. Has a great, amazing mm-hmm. uh, step off left high kick that he KO'd Mokhtarian with, and almost caught Tim Elliott with as yeah. well. Um, but he is fighting somebody who has an extensive kickboxing background he was 16 and 3 whenever he was uh, kickboxing but it just hasn't really transitioned well into the MMA striking Um, I will say that I think we got a little bit overzealous after watching Tyson Nam TKO him in that first round um, trying to fade him hard on that Sumo Darji fight Mm -hmm. and it just didn't really pan out for us if there's anything that we can say he, he is tough you know and I think that ultimately that could get us in trouble, get anybody in trouble trying to take Benoit inside the distance or something. And it's a lower weight class, so Benoit sitting at a minus one thirty-five-ish range. I think that that's probably the play to make. Although we're talking about a ten and seven guy and a yeah. three and three guy, it's tough. It's again a theme of the card. It's tough to form like have a, a good opinion about any of these fights. But I do lean Ryan Benoit here. Yeah, and I do as well. This fight was booked just about two months ago, and we had a play on Ryan Benoit fall apart when he had the weight-cutting issues. Mm-hmm. You know, curious, I don't necessarily think it's going to hinder this performance at all, but it does make me almost want to see him on that scale before I do drop a couple units or so on him. He trains out of Gracie uh, Gym there in Dallas, Texas. Looks to, you know, be implementing a lot of grappling into his game plan uh, for this fight, which I do think will probably be smart on his behalf. Ryan Benoit, yeah, you knock him for the 10-7 and 7 record. It It's like you're looking at Ashley Yoder's record or something, you know. Um, but he's fought decent competition, man. He's been in there with two world champions, a split decision with Brandon Moreno. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's finished the Bellator Bantamweight champion and Sergio Pettis in the second round. On the feet, he's got a good boxing. He's got a good left hook, fights with a very, very good jab. Um, and you talk about the left high kick he has, exact opposite or opposite side, but just like Robert Whitaker's, the mm-hmm. way he sets mm-hmm. it up. Um, and it's one of his best shots. With Zarouk, he's been training out of New Jersey under Mark Henry, been working a lot with Timur Valiev. So I do think he's implementing improvements into his game, but man, still extremely super green. He went into Bellator after losing his first professional fight. Bellator picks him up. He goes 3-0 and there with two knockouts. Bellator still doesn't even sign him back. They still don't want him, you know. He sits on the shelf 
for about a year or so before stepping up on short notice, funny enough, for Ryan Benoit to take on Tyson Nam. He misses the Bantamweight limit at like 138 pounds, gets knocked out with um, the first punch, and that's where I I noticed that striking defense that you brought up. He's he's used to the glory, um, big old 14-ounce gloves, and he uses them as almost a parry, as a block, and the four-ounce shots, man, or four-ounce gloves, they're going to slip through, and that's exactly what we saw with Tyson Nam. Um, and you're right, we thought that Mudarji TKO was going to be easy money, and I'll be damned if he doesn't show up looking like a new human being and, and great physical shape and wins the damn first round on two of the judges' scorecards. I knew our bet was basically done from the first time I saw him step in the cage. He's got a good left hand and stuff. Just super inexperienced. I do favor Benoit, actually, in the, in the MMA striking as well. Um, but I see a lot of people talking about the ground advantage he's going to have. And I do see it, but we're banking on a guy who's not had a submission since 2012. I mean, he's not won a damn fight since 2017, you know? And, and then his only takedown he's landed in his last six was, was counted when Tim Elliott more or less pulled guillotine. So, you know, to think that Ryan Benoit is going to come out here and shoot, there's shown me nothing in the past to think. But he's also not fighting someone who is green on the ground as Adeshev and being a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. Benoit's going to have the clear path to victory if he just implements it in his game plan, in my opinion. And, you know, as I looked at his record, man, we're talking about a guy who's got a loss to Anthony Burchak <laughs> and, and Alateng Haley. It's just, it's tough, man. Yeah. It's tough that we're having to try and find these spots on a card where it is so many low-level fights, mm-hmm. um, but we are so eager to bet on everything. <laughs> Um, this is another one where it's like I think if we bet him and he wins great but if we bet him and he loses we'd be kicking ourselves in the ass so I, I don't know right now I'm undecided but I, I wouldn't mind uh, you know looking looking after after the way yeah, in I think that's that's the biggest thing for Benoit is if is how he's gonna look on that scale after he didn't look good just two months ago if he were to show up looking really good I do favor him and at this price tag might regret it more even more if we pass up yeah Moving on, we're in the men's bantamweight division where we see Queen Ho Kang, who's 17 and 8, taking on Ronnie Yaya, who's 27, 10, and 1. Uh, Kang trained out of Team Mad in South Korea. He's actually been a part of the UFC all the way back since 2013. This guy debuted when the UFC was on Fuel TV. To kind of put it into context for you about how long ago, uh, this debuted on the card where Brian Stan and Wanderlei Silva just went to war. Uh, had the military sentence, which is mandatory for a lot of those Korean guys, and it, it put a four-year layoff from 2014 to 2018 in his career. Since his return, he's looked relatively good, in my opinion. Yaya, training out of Brazil, doesn't look like he's at American top team for this one. And man, he's been around just as long. He's been fighting Wineland, Mitsugaki, you know, Benavidez in the WEC days. He's an ADCC world champion in like 2005, 2007, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but over the 10 years, man, he hasn't really taken the time, in my opinion, to improve that striking whatsoever. I favor Kang really heavily in the stand-up here, um, and I really think he's la- he's got great jujitsu, but I think he's going to lack the wrestling, you know, to get the bigger guy down here. And, and ultimately, if Yaya hasn't finished this come middle of round two, I know you're sweating because the cardio for him just doesn't seem to be there for him anymore. I'm going to side pretty heavily with Kang here. I think he's one of my most confident bets of the night. Um, but I think Yaya as a dog kind of entices you a little bit. Yeah, man. This is definitely one of the fights that I sh- could spend a little bit more time on. Um, personally, just seeing Yaya as a dog right here piqued mm-hmm. my interest right off the bat. Um, I know a lot of people are looking at this Kang guy, and I personally can't imagine you being super confident on him 
Um, one, because of the long layoff post 30 years old. Um, two, you look at the, the fights that he's had in the UFC, he's had nine fights in the UFC, six of those going to decision and five of those being split decisions. I understand that maybe not all of them were deserving of being split decisions, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, some judges are fucking giving you split decisions mm-hmm. against guys that you should be finishing. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at Ronnie Yaya, and 21 of his 27 wins are by submission. He is a finisher, the exact opposite. He tries not to let the judges get involved. And like you said, past that second round, yeah, it does get a little bit greasy, but I'm pretty confident that Ronnie Yaya with his grappling edge is going to be able to get it to the ground. It's not necessarily that he has to use his wrestling chops to get it to the mm-hmm. ground. He's one of those guys that will look for heel hooks, will pull guard, and will do anything to get it to the ground. And if it's somebody like Kang, who usually uses some of his grappling to get his wins, it's just not it's not an option anymore against Ronnie Yaya. So he is going to have to stand up and show us something, in my opinion, that he hasn't really in the past. Um, so, so I think somebody like Kang, who you know has a couple of unknowns coming into this, I think it's really easy to see some, see him with a six inch reach advantage over an old aging Ronnie Yaya mm-hmm. here. Um, I, I think that it's a, it's a solid fight, like I said, one that I'd like to give a little bit more time on before I'm like gung-ho about Yaya, mm-hmm. but um, I do think that I'm more confident in betting Yaya than, than hoping that Kong has made enough improvements to win decisively in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Um, I get all where you're coming from. What I, you know, these guys are nowhere on the grappling level of Ronnie Yaya, but you know he's he is submitting Ishihara in round one. He's taking Brandon Davis to school in some of the wrestling. Who's a one forty five or you know coming down to thirty five, and then the Ping Yang Lu fight. Um, I mean that is one of the worst split decisions I've ever seen. The dude that you know Kang absolutely dominates this guy in every bit of the grappling. His jab is so sharp, and he's massive for bantamweight. I think he's gonna have a massive strength advantage. Yaya is gonna um is gonna have to Ryan Hall this for me in order to get it to the ground. He's gonna have to flop to the back, pull the Imanari roll, and you know if there's someone that can do it, I guess there is him because he's one dimensional as can be. But where he's good, he's damn good. I just gotta think, uh, you know, I gotta go with the younger, more physically fit guy that I think is gonna be able to defend off these takedowns, keep it on the feet where I feel like he's the better striker. Um, I, I got a couple more things with with Yaya. He does try and close those di- close the distance with some huge shots, mm-hmm. like leading up into it. And then it's also he's one of those guys where it's extremely difficult to try and establish a kicking game. So then it almost narrows Kong's offense down to he's got to be good with his hands only because if he does try and throw those kicks, I mean unless they're low calf kicks and he's able to pull them back quick enough, Yaya's gonna catch on to it. He's gonna figure that out, and I think that that's another way that he can whatever, Iminari roll, catch a leg and fall to the ground. And like I said, just kind of use unorthodox methods to get the fight to where he wants it as opposed to trying to rely on straight grapple or straight wrestling to get it to the ground. And he's already underdog. You probably get a pretty decent price tag on the submission. Mm -hmm. So if you are high on Kang like I am, it is a good spot if you want to hedge that off at all with Yaga by sub. Mm Mm-hmm. Moving on to our co-main events of the evening between Gloria DePaula, who's five and three, taking on Cheyenne Bays, who's five and two. This takes place in our strawweight division. Uh, both these girls have been super disappointing <laughs> since their UFC yeah. debut. Um, I know Gloria DePaula; she's still training out of Shootbox uh, de Lima in Brazil, but I know that she flew out to Las Vegas a few weeks back mm-hmm. to maybe acclimate herself to the environment, which I don't hate at all. Um, in her last fight against Jin Frey. And she had she had figured out how to beat Jin Frey in the second round, and 
just gave up a takedown in that third round that honestly came really, really easily to Jen Yufre. It didn't even really shoot that hard, and Gloria just wound up on her back. And I think that maybe at 26 years old, the fight IQ just isn't there for Gloria because it does look like she has the physical uh, aspects to her game that would make her successful. Cheyenne Bay's very marketable, and again, she's getting a favorable matchup stylistically, but man dude she's known for her grappling and you get out grappled by bunny ruiz the same way yeah. over and over and over again um it's just it's super disappointing to see i know that she's also she's moved to extreme couture for this camp which is uh, definitely going to benefit her both girls are 26 years old and i think that this is just the ufc's way of kind of matching up some prospects yeah. to see who's going to be the one that they push forward in the future yeah man um with glory de paula there at Chewbox, she's with her partner, um, girlfriend, and Myra Brena Silva, who's a flyweight in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Um, she fights just like her, too. She has nasty stand-up. She really sits down on her punches, and when she gets you in the clinch, she lets those knees fly. She got her contract on the Contender Series um, the same night Shan Bai's husband got his Contender Series contract. So she's probably been in there, seen the girl fight before, and she looked really good. And that's why we saw her come in as the minus 200 favorite against Jinyu Fry. And from round one, when you saw she didn't know how to get off her back, you know, mm-hmm. she really didn't look like the favorite um, at all in that fight. Come round two, Jenny Fry didn't shoot once, like we talked about. So, you know, it was an even matchup on the fight, on the feet where we saw DePaula get the better of her. But ultimately, come round three, like you said, one of the easiest takedowns that I've seen come yet. And we figure out she just can't get off her back yet again. Um, and typically, you know, the women, she got a five and three record. When you look at the uh, women's Brazilian regional scene, it's typically pretty, pretty low level. But the two girls she's lost to, man, are, are Isabel de Padua and Ariane Carniolosi, two girls who have made it to the UFC already. So, you know, surprisingly, she's fighting pretty di- uh, difficult competition. It's that inability to defend a takedown that really has me worried here. With Cheyenne Baez, contender series veteran as well, over uh, got the contract over Hillary Rose, really found the home for her jab, her leg kicks, um, and, and really just stuffed any level change Hillary Rose had to throw at her. But in that debut, I know she ruined so many nights as the minus 300 favorite to, you know, losing to the short notice Bunny Ruiz. And I, I don't know if it was, you know, JP getting knocked out earlier in the night. She just wasn't in the right headspace. But you're right, man. The inability to defend that one single head throw, um, it's going to keep me away from Cheyenne Buys, especially as a massive favorite here. I think this is a really tough fight to cap. I think if you want to look at value-wise, it is probably on Gloria. But Cheyenne Bias, her husband, is a very, very good wrestler. You know she's grinding that in the gym with him at home with him all the time. Um, and then I also see, you know, I think she's got the advantage in the wrestling. But then I see the way Bunny Ruiz treated her in the grappling and in the clinch situations. It's just an ultimate pass for me. And um, hopefully they rearrange this fight card and this isn't our co-main event, if you want my honest opinion. Yeah, man, this is this is... Really, it speaks to the level of this card having this <laughs> at, at co-main. It, it's a tough one to see, but you know, um, like I said, it'll 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 be the future of the UFC prospect for the 115 pound division because both these girls do have the tools to do it. They just need to figure out who's better. Yeah, and Gloria DePaula is going to have that like four and a half inch reach advantage, a couple of inches in size. She's she's a big straw weight, so you know Cheyenne might not have the same success with um, the wrestling as little Tank Jinyu Fry had, you know. Right. So, like again, Scream's ultimate pass for me, pretty low level fight to be in the position it's at. Mm-hmm. 
our main event of the evening is in the middleweight division where we see the number 8, Uriah Primetime Hall, who's 17-9, and nine, taking on the number 11, Sean Tarzan Strickland, who's 23-3. and three. Uriah Hall, typically out of Fortis MMA, but it does look like he's been training over at Extreme Couture some for this camp. Comes off the, um, the ultimate fighter there and a couple highlight reel knockouts, the spinning back kick in particular. This guy's kind of hailed as the, the next Anderson Silva coming off that show. You know, this guy has so much hype. Um, a very diverse set of striking, but man, my biggest knock on Uriah Hall is the dude just doesn't throw. He just doesn't let his hands go whatsoever. Um, right now, he has found himself on you know, on the winning side of four of his last five fights. But I'll get into breaking all three of that you know, on that win streak down a little bit, and it's just eh, if you really look at it, you know. On the side of Sean Strickland, you know, primarily out of Syndicate MMA, which I did kind of used to to poop on a little bit, you know, but. With the amount of guys that you've seen come to Vegas and start training, they're doing a lot of cross training, and you see some relatively good names start bleeding over there. But looking at Sean's Instagram, this guy is an absolute student of the game. You see him at Extreme Couture with a number of good middleweights, with Francis, with Ankalaev, at Kings MMA, talking about getting just some of the hardest rounds of work in that he can with Vittori. And then the work with Jason Perillo and guys there, um, and I mentioned that one because of the incident that went around on social media with the Orlando Sanchez mm-hmm. guy. And just for the record, straight my perspective, I think Sean was completely in the right in that. I think that was one of the dirtiest fucking things I've ever seen pulled, especially when a guy's got a main event coming up. But man, Sean um, had the, two, the motorcycle wreck kind of put a little stint on his career, pushing back, returned at middleweight, and I really like the Sean Strickland that I see here, and I think he's ready to take this step up for the to the fight the number eight guy in the division. I think it's the perfect guy for him to, to honestly get in that top ten of the middleweight division here, and um, that's why we've already dropped three units on Strickland, man. Yeah, man. I think Hall is one of those guys who's one of the weaker top ten mm-hmm. in the 185 division. Uh, he does come in with uh, quite a bit of physical advantages here. He's going to have the three-and-a-half-inch reach advantage, and uh, physically, like, that dude's yeah. a specimen, man, right. you know? Um, you talked about his timidness. He's kind of known for taking that time to warm up and uh, really just look for that perfect shot, which gets him into a lot of trouble. That being said, I think five rounds actually plays into right, his yeah. favor here. And if this was a three-round fight, I think we probably would have laid six units on Strickland, <laughs> yeah. you know? Strickland is a high-level striker himself, but um, he's one of those guys who doesn't have to throw 100% into every shot. He doesn't look for that perfect shot. He just kind of looks to piece you up with volume, and he has great vision when he's doing it. He's one of those guys that can keep his eyes on you and, and look and, and counter um, while he's actually in the exchanges. He, he's not ducking his head and going for overhands. Mm-hmm. He's he's uh, He knows exactly where he's throwing those strikes. Um, I will also say that Strickland, he has a uh, a... Uh, kind of like a what am I trying to say he has a all torso <laughs> he is standing straight up when he yeah. does strike but a uh, intimidation factor yeah. there we go he doesn't sit on a stool in between rounds and that's something that I think he does that try and gets in the heads of people and Ryan Hall's one of those fighters where I think mental game he's pretty weak man yeah. I think that he's vulnerable and um, that's something that Strickland could ex- could exploit, as we saw in the Jack Marshman fight, where he's like, come on, Jack, <laughs> pushing him. I think that that's something that we could also see in this Hall fight, where it ultimately either Hall does start throwing or he shells up like he's known for. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about the four-fight win streak that Hall's on. Those all come with a huge asterisk they on do. them. You know, you look at the Bevon Lewis fight, who... 
Uh, it turns out he's a fraud, man. And he's down two rounds going yeah, into that fight. Absolutely needs the, the KO there to win it. Then he goes for a split decision with Shoeface, who's no longer in the UFC. Very controversial. Judges just weren't into grappling that night. Right, right. And then 45-year-old Anderson Silva. I know we cashed big on the inside of the distance at like plus Under 178. Or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I played the hall inside the distance yeah. at plus one seventy eight, and that one was. Uh, I mean, it was it was gonna happen. A you know, forty five year old who's lost seven fights in a row. Right, you know? and and Hall has five rounds to try and pick him apart. Yeah. Um, and then the Weidman. Do we Luke. need to say? Yeah. <laughs> do we need to say more? I was all over Weidman in that one. It was a it was a it was a tough one to lose for sure. Um, Hall being the striker that he is, he's got a negative strike differential, and that just kind of speaks to his tibbedness on the feet where you see Strickland, who's coming here with over five significant strikes landed per minute. He's, I personally think that um, just the mindset of Strickland is why I'm fading Hall here. I think that he's on par with Hall mm-hmm. in striking, um, but he does need to be focused and careful for five rounds yeah. because hall does have that one hitter quitter power right and in in hall's um streak as well the bevon lewis the guy spends countless amount of time getting stuck stuck up against the fence in the carlos jr fight um again forced a whole lot of grappling you know um gets controlled in a whole lot of situations then you get to anderson silva and he's in the smaller cage which is not good for uriah hall and you see him back up a whole lot luckily he was able to get that finish but he's he's got his back on the cage a whole lot and then luckily with Chris Weidman, it is on a pay-per-view. You know, it is, um, it's in a bigger octagon. But I, I really thought, you know, he was going to have trouble in the e-grappling exchange. And now you stick him back in the apex octagon with the guy who and Sean Strickland puts on an insane forward pressure. Mm-hmm. I really do see Uriah Hall's back being on the fence the entire time, getting out jabbed, getting out pointed, um, getting stuck on the fence, and maybe even taken down a few times. Sean Strickland is, if you look at his social media, this guy just really seems to have hit his groove right now. He's... He's sparring on Tuesday before his fight. He's he's zoned in on the game right now, and I think it's his time, and I think he's got a good matchup in front of him. And coming into his prime, right, he's still under 30 yeah. years old. Mm-hmm. Whenever I saw that breaking this fight down, that was actually a, a surprise to me. I yeah. thought Strickland was 32. You C- know? Cage time with Ponzinibbio with Usman. It's all going to pay wonders for him as he continues to climb this division. He's not cutting weight like he used to everything. 100%. And you talk about the weight cut. You know, He used to fight at 170, and Hall being a long-time 185-er, you might think that, the, that he might be at a disadvantage, but we're seeing him whoop. Brendan Allen's ass at catchweight 195. Yeah. You know, that right there proved to me that he is uh, physically fit for this weight class. And I, I don't know, man. I, I see a, a lot of paths to victory for Strickland and really only a one-shot KO for Hall to get this done. Yeah, I hate to beat a dead horse, but Strickland all the way on Saturday, man. Awesome. Uh, concludes all breakdown of what I think is only 12 fights. Maybe there's 13. I know we didn't break down the good and then the Stolze fight just kind of thrown on us last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, casual cap, we're going to go with Yoder and Frey. Real toss up fight. I know we think the grappling exchanges are going to go a bit different, so it does have a bit of an exciting aspect to it, mm-hmm. even though it's a pretty low level fight. But if you had to pick a uh, fight throughout the whole card, what's one the fans should pay most attention to? It's going to be that Danny Chavez versus Kai Kamaka three fight. I yeah, think that yeah. one's, you're going to have fireworks, yeah. and that first round's going to be absolutely insane. Um, that one's I'm, I'm looking the most forward to. What about yourself? Yeah, you got the Colombian Warrior versus a, the fighting Hawaiian. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's destined for fireworks. I'm gonna go with Trevin Jones and Ronnie Lawrence. It's you know really early on the card, but two very good prospects. You know Dana White really likes what he sees from Lawrence. I love that style. 
I could pick a fighting style, more than likely what I would emulate. Mm-hmm. And Trevin Jones has just been the upset king lately, cashing those underdog tickets, and it's going to be an extremely fun fight. Not to mention a Tennessee boy, so yeah, we love right. watching Ronnie Lewis that's perform. Right. For What's sure. a fighter? Everybody needs to pay attention for. <laughs> a fighter to watch. It's got to be Nico Montagna, you know? Can't uh, hate it. Five, five fights that she's been pulled out of, mm-hmm. and you know, finally we get to see her back in the octagon. Let's hope we can see her continue that ultimate fighter momentum. Um, but who knows? You know, I know that last loss to Juliana Pena. Juliana Pena is about to fight for a title. Right. It's not something that she should hang your head about. So mm-hmm. I do think that she has all the potential to come in here and really whoop ass, but that's a lot of what ifs. What about yourself? This one was tricky for me, and I, and I went with Melsic Bagdasarian. Um, I think, you know, the value, especially after round one live betting England is there. But what I see from Belsic, or from Melsic, especially in round one, this guy's an extremely talented kickboxer, and extremely fun to watch you know like Edmund he goes out there and gets a couple quick finishes they'll, they'll put a lot of stock into him early and try to you know mm-hmm. try to climb him through the rankings I think he's someone at least uh, should keep an eye on uh, the best underdog for me maybe not going to be an underdog much longer he's only sitting at like a plus 105 we're going to go ahead and release a little play on Danny Chavez there um, you know I know you took that as your fight to watch but we definitely do lean Danny Chavez and ever so slightly in just about every aspect of the game. Yeah, I really like that, especially at Plus Money, like mm-hmm. you said. I'm going to have to go with the casual cap. Jin Frey <laughs> is sitting at the at the Plus Money right now. I think that one's another one that might start evening out closer mm-hmm. to fight time. Um, but that, that'll be my underdog. Yeah. And best bet? Uh, best bet's going to be Sean Strickland. I know we already released the heavy play on it. Like we said, this is a three-round three fight. We're doubling that bet. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that Strickland has all the tools to win this, and uh, but I think you've got also got a pretty good bet that we're playing as yeah, well. Yeah, and I really like that Strickland one. For me, the best bet, we're actually going to get it at plus money, Hoffa Garcia inside the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, ton of red flags for Grootsmeyer. Ton of things I like about Rafa Garcia here. Um, yeah, uh, like I said, again, don't want to beat a dead horse, but Rafa Garcia is going to put this guy away. 100%. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Hop in those comments. Let us know what you guys think of this card and who you have in the main event. Hope you're catching some tickets with us on Saturday. Peace.